Hello and welcome to Earliest Years of Life. Hi, I'm Zachary Yassin and for the last 15 years I have worked with Bradford's babies, young children and their families. My name's Kerry Bennett and I'm currently working here at Better Start Bradford but my background is in health visiting and children's nursing. This series looks at how babies' earliest months and years gives them the vital tools to help them through the rest of their life. In this episode, we ask the question, is dad okay? We often talk about postnatal depression in mothers, but do we regularly look for the signs of adverse mental health in fathers? The latest research suggests that one in 10 new fathers develop depression and even higher numbers experience anxiety. So how can early years professionals spot the signs and encourage fathers to open up on this subject? Our guests today are Dr. Matthew Price, Principal Clinical Psychologist for Little Minds Matter, Bradford's Infant Mental Health Service. Hi, Matt. Hi, thanks for having me. And Elias Kamani, an imam, a psychologist and holistic counsellor and therapist with Sharing Voices Bradford, a community mental health organisation. Thanks for joining us, Elias. Hi, it's great to be with everyone, guys. I think a great place to start would be that we've just heard one in 10 new fathers develop depression and even higher numbers experience anxiety, which is really startling, isn't it? So from your experience, how prevalent is perinatal mental health amongst new fathers? That one in 10 number is really commonly cited. And I think it's one that the research generally tends to land on. My experience is that we don't really ask about it often enough. So I suspect, if anything, that's a real underrepresentation of how many dads generally struggle with low mood and anxiety in that perinatal period. And I think we've got to look at this issue at a broader level. You know, there's there's a big challenge with regards to masculinity and mental health anyway. So men tend to be very reluctant in accessing any kind of mental health support services, and certainly not at the early intervention level, and most often at the crisis level. And I think that's going to become even more so the case when it comes to perinatal depression as well. I think there would be probably even more stigma and even more reluctance to actually admit that you're actually going through a depressive episode at what should be a euphoric event in your life. You're giving this great blessing of a child, and it's not just an experience for the mother and and the father. This is an extended family and almost a community kind of related activities. So therefore, to admit at this moment where there's so much cultural expectation on you that actually I'm finding it really difficult and I'm finding it very difficult because of my own experiences perhaps of family life and my own experience growing up as a child and because of a lot of the anxieties and stresses that I'm going through now. Now I'm supposed to be a father on top of that. And if you haven't had any kind of formal education about what it means to be a dad, and you're carrying challenging issues yourself about what this responsibility entails, then you can see how challenging it becomes. And then if we don't create spaces where men talk about their mental health generally, all fathers go through challenging emotional well-being issues related to parenting and related to birth as well. And those that have protective factors around them are obviously able to manage that, are able to build some resilience and are able to kind of overcome that. But the reality is that there are a lot of dads out there across the whole of society who haven't got those protective factors. How do we include fathers and ensure that men can talk, you know, to get the support that they need? Like you say, some do have that inbuilt resilience or that structure around them to support them. But for those that don't, how does it present in practice, Matt? Can you sort of maybe explain what you see in practice? 
I think to get a sense of that, it's helpful to think about how we understand mental health difficulties in that perinatal period. So even for women experiencing mental health difficulties in the perinatal period, there's this sense that, you know, maybe that's a chemical imbalance that's caused by the pregnancy and actually a minimization of the fact that it's a huge burden of responsibility to become a parent for the first time. So if we start to see mental health difficulties through that lens, then all of a sudden that opens up a world of opportunities for first of spotting that dads might struggle too. Mm -hmm. This isn't just a biological response to giving birth and to having a baby. This is a social and emotional response that dads can have too. So first of all, we need to just start asking dads how they are. And I think that's it's a really simple starting point, but without it, I think we won't get very far at all. Just to dig a little bit more around that, both of you in so many words have talked about how sometimes you have these protective measures and other times you don't. With all of that in mind, how welcome do you think dads feel in early years environment, whether it's antenatal, postnatal, just the earliest services that might be on offer to families at that point? How father inclusive do you feel they are? You know, I, I think we send out a very mixed message on a societal level. And I'm going to go down to what I call the macro and the micro of it. At a macro level, I don't think we value fathering at all at a societal level. Yes, now we have paternity leave. And yes, I think there's now a recognition that fathers play a key role in early years nurturing. Acknowledging it doesn't mean that we create the structures to actually enable fathers to actually play that significant role. And I think really, we also have to look at it at a socioeconomic level. Within Bradford, the challenge that we're dealing with is fathers from challenging socioeconomic backgrounds living in deprived and disadvantaged areas with poorer employment conditions, more or less slogging their guts out in low paid, low skill, low wage work having to be providers for their families. And again, within the city area, Bradford East and Bradford West are in the top 10 areas for child poverty in the whole of the UK. Then how can we expect fathers now to play this significantly engaged and meaningful role when there's so many socioeconomic pressures on them? So this is the mixed messages we send. We want fathers to play that active role in those critical zero to five years. But then on a socioeconomic level, there are so many structural barriers for them to do so. And then there's another element when we go down to the micro level. And this is what the Resilient Dads program is really trying to overcome. When we work it down to the micro level, parenting programs are generally seen as the realm of mothers and, and females and fathers, especially what I call non-traditional learners and fathers who perhaps don't feel secure with going through learning programs and parenting programs, feel profoundly insecure in terms of engaging and accessing programs like that. So we have to make the programs much more flexible. So I'll give you an example. We run our sessions on weekends. We run our sessions in the evenings and we also run them through really flexible mediums with sound bites to really enable and empower our dads with certain skills that allow them to play a practical and realistic role, given the context of their lives. Otherwise, we really disengage our fathers. You know, it's bad enough fathers feeling that they're just not doing a good enough job and then coming onto a parenting program and overwhelming them with so many principles around social, emotional and cognitive development. Yeah, it becomes even more overwhelming. And so we have a very high dropout. So I think you're right. On a societal level, we send out one message that fathers are important. But I think in real terms, it's anti-father and that we don't create the structures where fathers create that meaningful connection. 
I really like what you're describing there, Alias, at that kind of macro and micro level. I would just build a little bit on that kind of macro level because there are two sides to this coin. So there's, on the one hand, the idea that we need to be more inclusive of fathers in the early years setting. Um, but the other side to that is that we need to be more inclusive of women in the workplace because without tackling gender equality in the workplace and enabling women to feel like they are allowed to go back to work whilst they've got a young child, we won't enable dads to feel like they can stay at home and look after to the child. In some ways, this is a, a feminist issue that we can champion the role of fathers in society at the same time as enabling women to feel like they've got permission to go back to work if they want to. We can think about this in both of those ways, I think, in order to be most helpful. Absolutely. Really valuable points there. And it sort of makes you think of your own personal situation, doesn't it? As mothers, fathers, as we're sat around the table thinking about our own experiences of being parents and going back to work and balancing that. How did that feel for you both? Yeah, I'll, I'll happily um, chip in there. So I've got a daughter called Callie, who is 18 months old tomorrow. My wife and I had lots of conversations about what would life look like with our daughter. And Jen has gone back to work full time and I've gone part time. And I really identify with a sense of loss really as not being the full-time worker and maybe feeling a little bit kind of torn into that I wish I could have a full-time working mat as well as a full-time at home mat. And I wonder if that's how most women in society are feeling at the moment, mm. where the norm is the mothers have to make some sort of compromise. So I think having as many forms as possible where it's okay to kind of share that, to normalize that, there's literally a book called Torn Into, which describes that there's this kind of both and feeling, you know, I, I feel like I want to go back to work and a guilt that I'm not at home with Callie all of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we just need to talk about that more and really normalize those feelings, that kind of conflict around some of these decisions. Absolutely. Alias, what's your experience as a father? I'm hoping that in the next five years, I'll become a granddad. So that's ah. my answer. <laughs> so, so, so and, and you know what? I was having this discussion with my wife yesterday and we were just talking about our kids. I've got five kids and they range from 26 to nine. So quite, quite a spectrum. As a parent, I had a lot of attachment in the 90s when I was working with my older kids because of my work-life balance enabled me to do so. But then as I became much busier in my work, I was doing a lot of traveling, I'd say in the last five, 10 years, I've been doing so much traveling internationally all over. And I noticed the detriment that had with my younger two kids in terms of attachment. So this is the whole thing about parenting, you know, especially when you do it over, like I said, this 20 year period, yeah, that as a dad, it's tough, I've got to say, I've made loads of mistakes, you know, as a dad. The reason is because no one gave me a manual that's the first thing. And even though I'm a psychologist, even though I've done child development, and even though I'm more, I think, socially aware than many people, I think you're battling three things. The first thing was my own experience as a son growing up in an abusive household with domestic violence and really being affected very negatively by that. So that was the first thing, me unpacking my own trauma and my own imprinting from my own father and son relationship. And then the second thing that I was grappling with was cultural expectations on me as a man, as a father in society. What is it expected from me as someone who's supposed to be the earner culturally? Obviously, that was an expectation and make sure that I'm nurturing my kids and role model for them, earning a living, paying bills. Okay. All of that kind of stuff. It's a big, big challenge. And then the third issue, I think, is that creating a real what I call partnership model. A partnership model between you and your partner bringing up your children together 
there are challenging relationship issues that nearly one third of our families in Bradford are single parent families now. So we've got some really challenging issues there in terms of the strain on the overall family structure. Being a dad is, is tough, I think. It really is tough and it's got real challenges. And a lot of us as dads don't talk about it. And, you know, when I say to my kids, I apologize to my kids when I make mistakes. Humility, apologizing, recognizing your mistakes, recognizing that you're still learning. You know, this is also part of that, that whole journey of being a dad. Thanks for your honesty there, Alias. I think one of the things that you started to touch on there for me, and it, and it links into another statistic that I've read lately around the Royal Report on the early years around loneliness for parents generally, and how that's increased from 38% to 63% during the pandemic. And that is a real concern to me as a, as a professional and, and thinking of it personally as well, how the pandemic has affected us all. You've talked there about all those challenges, those pressures, of being that father, that breadwinner, all those things. What does loneliness look like for men? It can be different for different men in different circumstances, of course. But I guess when you're faced with all of those pressures that we've already talked about, I think sometimes it's really easy for the walls to go up and for you to start to feel like you're really trapped with those difficult cocktail of feelings and thoughts and expectations that you have on yourself. And so without somebody kind of trying to peek over the wall and say, how are you doing in there? Even when you're around others, I think it's possible to feel lonely. So I'm, I'm not surprised to see that the feelings of loneliness have increased. I think we need to be talking about the fact that one in three men felt lonely before the pandemic. This isn't just a pandemic problem, is mm, it? True. So I think it's something about even when you're around others, how connected to them are you? And are men more inclined to be putting up those walls because they're taught from such a young age not to cry that it's weak to have emotion? There's two sides to this, isn't there? There's about how can we try and support fathers to talk about their feelings, to share how things are going for them, to break that loneliness. But also, how do we support young boys in their early life, in their toddlerhood and in their school? Schoolhood to be able to express experience and, and be supported with their emotions so that when they become fathers, that's almost just like the expectation that they have about their relationship with their feelings. Yeah, it's like the new norm. The new norm, absolutely. Alice, can I bring you in there a little bit as well? Because having worked at grassroots community level, you've got a lot of experience of working with diverse communities. Do you think that this conversation of loneliness looks different amongst different cultures and communities? Do you know, I think there's a general aspect of it but I think it's also culturally contextualized. And I think the point that Matthew's made, you can be in a room full of all of your mates and everyone could be enjoying themselves and there'd be lots of bravado, but internally the mask you wear, you are profoundly alone. And the reason you are profoundly alone is because that inner reality of yours, you can never disclose to another. And that's the spaces that we have to create, the spaces that allow from a young age, and this is building emotionally resilient men, you start at childhood, where you say vulnerability is important. That's why, you know, guys, I talk about my vulnerability. People find it strange that I'll talk about my self-harm when I was 14. I'm 52 now, and I've still got the scars on my arm from 13 and 14. And I wear them with pride because I was able to become resilient as a result. And I think it made me a much better therapist and a much better in terms of understanding the profound human vulnerability. And when you show your vulnerability, you create an environment where real courage is actually being emotionally vulnerable. And to disclose your inner life and give an emotional literacy so that we have the language to talk about our feelings, 
Nothing wrong with crying, nothing wrong with being emotional and expressive of that. Because the whole objective is what? Is to really, you know, heal ourselves and, and to really be able to overcome. You know, all of us as therapists and frontline workers know that we have clients who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, and it's taken them 40, 50 years just to disclose the trauma that they had in children. And they've lived with that all their lives. And it's so liberating when men are able to disclose their inner life and have that emotional literacy to do so and heal from that. You talk there about creating that space. What can we do in practical terms as professionals, as partners, as mothers? What can we do better to help fathers to find that space? One of the things that Alias has already spoken about there is about role modeling it, being able to say something that exposes some vulnerability in us that says, do you know what? I can be vulnerable and I'm okay. It doesn't make me fall apart. It's okay. I'm not socially rejected. I'm okay. There's something really important, I think, about role modeling as practitioners trying to support fathers and vulnerability. I think there's also something really important around the way in which we ask questions of men and of fathers. I guess if we focus on fathers in particular, if we were to ask a question off the cuff in a visit with a new dad without really kind of paying attention, maybe we're busy getting our notepad out of our bag and our pen, we're trying to set set ourselves up for the visit, then that dad's not really going to see that that's an open invite to take off that mask and share some of that vulnerability and loneliness. But if we were to say something like, you know, lots of new dads experience um, some real anxiety and some low mood around the time of having a new baby, even though it can be a really joyous time. Does that sound like something that you've noticed over the past few weeks? Can really change the conversation and say, ah, oh, the dad recognizes this isn't just something that's inside me. This is a really common experience. And maybe if it's common, I can be brave enough to talk about it. Thinking back to my own practices when I held a caseload as a health visitor, like you say, we ask questions, but how that's interpreted mm-hmm. by that that family, if we don't address them as dad, how do you feel? Mum, mm-hmm. how does that feel to you? And really direct those questions. Like you say, it can just feel like it's addressing the mum and bringing them into the conversation yes. rather than the dad. I think it's really important that we see more and more that when invites to appointments, that it's both mum and dad that are invited and really clearly saying that than just, you know, that general parents. Do you know, I think the assumption is that fathers don't actively care for their baby. And I think perhaps a, a historic training in lots of early years practitioners has been a focus on mums. And I don't think we're yet at a point where it can be focused on mums and dads and partners, there's still a way to go there before dads are really seen as active contributors to parenthood. It's really interesting. So if I think back to that very first home visit with a health visitor that I had, I greeted the health visitor at the door with Callie in my arms. And the only question that she asked me was about how the new house was going because we'd moved house since her last visit. There wasn't really a recognition that I might be actively involved mm. in caring for Callie, I don't think. It does sadden me because we know from you know the Healthy Child Programme that a lot of health is in practice is built on that the contribution of fathers to make the children's development, health and well-being is so important, but it does say that services don't do enough to recognise and support them. 
So I think what's really nice about the Healthy Child Programme is that it really clearly articulates what we've learned from science, which is that there's such a strong relationship between the way in which fathers are actively involved in supporting their child's development and the future developmental outcomes of that child. So, for example, fathers who are more likely to take their child on trips out to visit others, to visit friends and family, those children grow up to be more sociable. So the science is really clear that this matters and this has a real impact on how children develop positively. What we really need to be doing is championing that science, sharing it with practitioners to make it really clear that this isn't just kind of a side part of your role, but that asking dads about how involved they are in their child's life and how they might like to be more involved in their child's life just becomes routine practice because we already know how important it is. We just need to try and share that message as widely as possible. And I think there's there's some cultural stereotypes as well. I've noticed, obviously, with the large South Asian community in Bradford, that, you know, there's almost a sense that South Asian men play a very patriarchal role, which would be their heads of families and that they are there to be the kind of figurehead, but they're not hands-on parenting. The number of times I've had to talk to community elders and in mosques as well, where they've seen a man holding a child and they've said, what are you doing holding your baby? What What is he doing? They were outraged by it. And then I had to remind them, obviously, within the Islamic tradition, and this is another faith, the, the prophet himself would actually pray with his children in his own hands. This is what our religion actually teaches us. But this is obviously a cultural pattern of behavior, which is sometimes completely in contradiction to that. In 2021, I find it strange that, again, health visitors perhaps sometimes are reinforcing the stereotypes. But I think, Matthew, you're right. It's about minimizing the issue. People don't want to start to open the Pandora's box and really start to say, well, actually, no, dad, you need to be much more hands-on and you need to be more involved and you need to change nappies and you need to be able to do everything that a mother is able to do. Do you think we've just touched on there about stereotypes as well and and generally in the workforce, you know, of the early years settings and role modelling and seeing real strong role models of men in nursery settings? We don't see that enough. Do you think that that's the case? Yeah, I mean, it is a a very female heavy industry, if you want to call it that. Mm. So when we're thinking about positive male role models, I mean, do you see many of them around? This has been a real concern of mine because part of the challenge is that for a lot of boys growing up, it won't be until perhaps later teens that they actually have what I call an emotionally available and present male in their life. If they themselves have absent fathers or it's certainly emotionally absent, then where is that positive male role model? I do a lot of work in the criminal justice system. I work in young offenders institutes and I do a lot of work around youth violence. And it's bizarre that many of the boys and young men that I work with in in the criminal justice system, the first time that they've ever had a meaningful interaction with an older male is with myself in prison. And then it's also interesting that the first time that we actually deal with underlying trauma, mental health issues is in the criminal justice system, not through early intervention. Why do you reckon that's the case that it's not until much later in adolescence that they're presented with an opportunity to build that relationship with someone? Because it's profoundly reactive, that's why. And I think it came back to the undermining of of fatherhood. And so why I think this is so important we're having this discussion is because of that, unless we actually start to actually deal with this real issue, then unfortunately it does get hijacked by this very reactionary manosphere, okay, men going on their own, where they feel that there's no role for them. 
One of the programs I was involved in delivering in London is exactly that. It's based on the Caring Dads program, which is a Canadian program, and Resilient Dads in Bradford kind of like almost builds on that, which is that we have fathers, unfortunately, who have been involved in domestic violence and abuse and have obviously been abusive towards their children. Now, if they are completely disengaged from that process, then that Ukraine creates this real deficit and a vacuum and we reinforce a pattern. So we've got to work proactively or we've got to work much more intensively with those dads in order to make sure that they then are able to overcome those challenging issues and are able to be actually much more emotionally available and present in terms of the fathering of their children. There's something that you both have, have touched on, which is emotional literacy. And I'm just thinking that while you were talking there about proactively engaging with fathers and almost providing a set of tools that they can use, language is so powerful and being able to kind of express different emotions without attaching labels to them is, mm-hmm. is so important in the lives of everyone, but particularly young boys and their men. Is there anything else that you want to kind of add to that as to why perhaps we need to kind of thread in that approach to parenting courses or training our frontline staff when they're going out. So I think that that point about emotional literacy is really, really important. And I think lots of this boils down to the way in which we nurture emotions in our babies and in our children. And it makes me think about my recent journey to finding a nursery for little Callie. And uh, one of the questions that I would ask the nurseries that I visit is how would you manage behavior that can be quite challenging? Like if a child were to steal another the toy or hit another child. And the majority of nurseries that I visited said, oh, well, we tell them that that's not okay. And if they still do it, then there's always the timeout. And as a psychologist that focuses on trying to support children with big feelings, that would just make me shudder because what's really important, rather than trying to banish these strong feelings that are really natural to have in toddlers, is to try and be with them and support them with those big feelings. Eventually, I found a nursery and asked that question. They said, right, well, first of all, we'd really try and understand how children develop and how normal it is for toddlers to have really strong feelings if they're wanting to have a toy that somebody else is playing with. If they do become really distressed, then we take them for a time in where we stay next to them. We've got sensory activities. And we really try and support them with those big feelings. And then when they're ready to talk about it, then we can help them to think about different ways of responding in that challenging situation. And I just thought that's really where we need every nursery in the country to be focusing on. Matthew, it's not just nurseries. It follows all the way through the school system. The number of times I hear teachers saying that this is a difficult child, and I'll say there is no such thing as difficult children. A child is a product of an environment and there's a construct to their behavior. Do you know what? As psychologists, we have a predictive power. At 9, 10, 11, we can predict what's going to happen at 11, 12, 13. And we're doing that now with ACES work where we have a 77% predictability from early childhood attachment to whether someone will have delinquent and antisocial behavior in their teens. And it's kind of bizarre that we allow this car crash to take place. The number of times I'm in schools and a teacher will take a child who has challenging behavior and then they will punish a child who's already been traumatized. We put them into isolation booths. We exclude them. We pass on the problem to others. At no point do we actually sit down with a child and actually just listen and allow them just to express what's going on in their life and then work in a systemic way with the family and with the father in particular, because it's a learned behavior. And that's from nursery all the way through, I'm afraid, the way that we deal with emotional challenges. And that's why the core is if the only tool in your box is a hammer, then that's the only communication tool that you have. And we've got to put more tools in the box. Mm -hmm. It's really as simple as that. 
It just comes back to prevention, 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 doesn't it? We've come back to that, you know, that focus on early intervention, mm-hmm. getting those foundations right, like you say, about putting the investment into prevention. This this myth that we need time out, we need to to relegate emotions and people talk about having good feelings and bad feelings. Actually, no, there's no such thing as a bad emotion. And when we dig behind what that challenging behavior is, there's probably an emotion that feels hard to feel. But that's our role as adults to try and support children with those feelings that are hard to feel. And if we come back to fathers and why this is important for dads and for men is that if we get this right for the little boys that are in nursery now, then they'll be able to get it right for their little boy when they become a father. So it really is about trying to break through some of these myths and get in there early around um, emotional literacy. There's a real strong theme of prevention that seems to appear in all our podcast episodes. But equally, I think the point that Alias, you raised about it's not just at the early years that we're mm, talking about the mm. importance of emotional literacy. It's actually throughout the, the lifespan and why is it so important at different milestones and why we should kind of take up every opportunity that is presented. So I think there's something there about being a circuit breaker, mm. getting in early. There's also something about being responsive. Mm. A lot of the work that we're doing around ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences and early child development. It's not rocket science. It's not something new. But I think sometimes we seem to forget that we can reverse patterns of behavior. The nature of what neurological science has told us about neuroplasticity is that even into late adulthood, we can actually mold our brain's architecture and we can actually learn new patterns of behavior. So I think it's important to realize that we need to deal with all levels, layers and age groups in our society. When did compassion nurturing and being caring and empathetic. When was that ever removed from the concept of masculinity? In fact, I think it's core to masculinity to be compassionate, to be empathetic, to show humility, and to actually be a giver. I think these are core. And I think when we shift these very old paradigms around masculinity and actually say, no, actually, this is actually what masculinity is about, then you also create, I think, a cultural shift. And I think there's another important point around prevention which is that, again, we've kind of compartmentalized society. There's really a disintegration, I think, of what I call sense of community now as well. We talk about community, but on a national level, I think there's really a disintegration in social and meaningful connections in our lives. One of the amazing, beautiful things about Bradford is, yes, we have lots of social and emotional challenges, but as a Londoner living in Bradford, I find there's a greater sense of real community here. People do look after each other. And I think it takes a village to bring up a child. It takes many, many nurturing and caring adults who are present in the life of that child to really bring up that child. Resilient dads isn't just about dads. It's about anyone as a male who has a caregiving responsibility. And we're saying that as men, we have a responsibility, all of us, to bring up the next generation of children so that they do not have the toxicity and the trauma and the real emotional challenges that we had and that we actually break that cycle. And when we look at the research on a global level where unfortunately that doesn't happen, you see just that on an epigenetic level and a cross-generational level, you just see the transference of those issues. Alice, I just wanted to pick up on one of the points that you raised then, because I think you raised it really nicely, which is when did we remove the idea of compassion from masculinity? And I think the answer really is in a conversation that we've already had around the absence of emotionally available men. So if the only role model of compassion in a child's early life is a woman, then we internalize without really noticing that that's what we're doing, but we internalize the idea that for compassion, we need a woman rather than compassion 
compassion is just how humans should treat each other, whether they're male or female. When I do the group sessions, I ask fathers about their own experiences. And I ask them the question, tell me the greatest moment you had with your dad. The moment of real, what I call unbridled joy, the really euphoric experience. And you know what they say? They remember the day trips. They remember the picnics. They remember dad telling them how to kick a football. They remember these real moments of real connection between them and their father. They don't remember the gifts. They don't remember the material objects that they've bought. It's those moments when dad was really there. And you know, the sad reality is that unfortunately, those for a lot of dads are fleeting moments because I think, as I said, the socioeconomic challenges, the emotional challenges, their own experiences, that's the minority experience. Surely as a society, we need to kind of realign. So those moments of real joy between not just fathers, but parents and, and children, we maximize those opportunities. There's a real message of hope there, isn't there? When families don't have much, what matters? It matters that you connect. It matters that dads try and find that time to be with that child in that moment and just connect. And hopefully that helps to alleviate some of that pressure that we spoke about earlier, that pressure to provide for the family, to be everything, to, to be the person who is providing. All of a sudden, they just need to be the person that's connecting. And I know that it's much easier said than done, but it makes me think about some research that found that dads who engaged in kind of rough and tumble play with their child, the children produced the same levels of oxytocin, which is the love hormone, as the child still getting that really warm, loving cuddle from mum. So there's something really important about the way in which dads are connecting. And the science tells us that's really important. And hopefully it's a, a real message of hope for the fathers that might be listening. Dads often ask, I don't know what to do. And I say, you know what? You don't have to do much. They actually think that unless I turn up with a new Xbox or a PlayStation, that I'm somehow deficient as a dad. No. Dad sometimes say, I don't know what to say. I said, you don't have to say anything. You need to put all of your devices aside. Give absolute full focus towards your child, that they know you are fully present in the moment with them. It doesn't have to be hours and hours either. It's minutes. And just hold your children. I always make sure that when I hug my youngest, I don't let go of him. I really don't let go of him. And literally, he'll be trying to pull himself away sometimes. But, you know, I just want to make sure that he knows that attachment is always there, really. We don't need to know everything as dads in terms of what our children want because they will tell us they're really good communicators from the moment that they're born. They are born ready to relate with the adults around who are paying attention. So don't worry about trying to find the manual of being the perfect dad. Look at your child who will be the manual and tell you what they need. Um, they're so active in, in eliciting play and interactions from growing up. So yeah, I think your message of relaxing and connecting is a good one for dads that are listening. I use a lot of media narrative in my work. And there's a really wonderful line in The Road to Perdition, which is the Tom Hanks film. He plays this very austere dad who's very disconnected from his son. And they go on a road trip together and they really bond. And I think there's a wonderful line at the end of it where the son is asked, tell me about your dad. What was he like? Was he a good man or a bad man? He says, I don't know what to say. He was just my dad. And every time I say that, it makes me choke up, really. You know, our dads weren't perfect. My dad wasn't perfect, but he was my dad and he's my dad. And I still love him. One of the things with my children, I say that it's quite amazing that despite me fumbling through this experience, they have turned out better than me, I hope, you know. Mm -hmm. 
This is Earliest Years of Life, the Better Start Bradford podcast, and it's time now for the two-minute mic takeover. In every podcast, we give our guests two minutes to share a key message on today's topic for practitioners or decision makers. So Matt and Alias, you have two minutes for your key message. Starting now. So I think for me, my takeaway point would be to try and get every person who is working with families to start to become advocates, to start advocating on behalf of the dads that are in the families that they're working with. Every child has a father, regardless of what the current family makeup is. One of the things that we've done in Bradford that I think starts to do that really nicely is setting up a steering group called Bradford Dads Matter. And that's got representations from a range of organizations, services right across Bradford District to try and help us to think about how do we directly engage dads in the lives of their children? How do we influence policy to make sure that there's no conversation that's had with a dad that's not recorded, that we we really represent dads at a systems level as well as a practice level? And how do we make sure that the workforce is well trained and supported to feel really confident to have conversations with dads about how important their roles are in the lives of their children? And if If dads were to raise concerns, questions, then those practitioners would feel really comfortable to to manage those conversations and to have somewhere to go if they start to struggle. So what's my one minute takeover key message? It's that everyone working with families should become dadvocates. Parenting programs are generally attended by mothers and fathers generally tend to feel excluded from them. So Resilient Dads is actually about creating an environment where men access parenting programs and they're delivered in a way which are very, very flexible, very, very fluid, very, very user-friendly, especially for fathers who perhaps feel insecure with what we call traditional learning and in learning environments. And they're also trying to juggle that with obviously work demands as well. And so we've made our whole approach something which is very very flexible, very engaging, and and something which overcomes some of the almost fear that individuals have in terms of accessing programs. And through this, we're actually empowering dads with a whole portfolio of skills that they have just completely created what I call these light bulb moments for them where they realize, wow, this is actually working with my children. One of the messages that we really want to get out to our dads in particular is that postcode has more impact than genetic code. Why is it that if you live in BD5 or BD3, somehow, if you look at on a longitudinal level, that your children will have perhaps less opportunities than someone who's brought up in BD20 or BD35? Why should that be different? The key difference is what? It's actually the parenting role. And it's actually fathers being actively involved in actually nurturing and developing and really addressing that early social, emotional and cognitive development of their children. Resilient Dads is going to be a project, I hope, which is going to have a real national impact. But it's going to show that when you create accessible structures and an accessible, user-friendly learning environment, then men from what I call non-traditional learning backgrounds who don't normally access parenting programs Okay, we'll be very, very open towards coming towards those programs. And then that has a knock on effect. That's it. Your two minutes are up. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for starting the conversation about dads. And thank you for joining us, Alias. This has been an absolute amazing episode. Thank you so much, guys. And it's just been wonderful to be part of this conversation. 
I think my key takeaway today is just how emotional that I got and hearing both Matt and Elias speak about being fathers and then professionals as well. It, it really hit a nerve with me today. It was just really inspiring and they talked about role models and what great models they both are and how lucky we are to have them working here in Bradford with us. And how awesome is the term dadvocates? Dadvocates, I love it. I love it. We should be using that more in our everyday practice, being a dadvocate. Thank you for listening to Earliest Years of Life, the Better Start Bradford podcast. And please don't forget to hit subscribe and rate it as well. In the next episode, we explore the relationship between childhood adversity and outcomes in later life. To find out more about how we support baby and toddler development across this part of West Yorkshire, head over to betterstartbradford.org.uk. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.